0: Show you a way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October 27, 2015. This is episode 1666 of the Survival Podcast. That's a very special episode. I'll tell you why when we get into the main part of today's show. Let me just say that today's episode is a milestone. It's a milestone event for me personally, one I've mentioned in the past. Some of you may know what it's all about, but even if you don't, I'll tell you in just a bit. I thought it would be good for this milestone episode, too, uh, that maybe we do something uh, a little bit of a throwback. So I'm going to talk about a subject that I haven't spoken on recently. I'd say in the last year I haven't spoken on it deeply. But I originally first spoke on this particular subject about 2009, 2009, on this show. And I went back today and I pulled actually the same outline that I used for that show and used it for today. But today's show will be dramatically different. Why? Because there's seven years between then and now evolving thinking, but these same principles still apply to everything we do. And that subject is the difference between self-reliance and self-sufficiency and how that applies itself to our lifestyle planning, specifically when we're trying to develop resilient lifestyle design. So what we have today uh, for today's episode is kind of an episode that, that takes us back, but yet brings us forward at the same time. We acknowledge what we've learned over the years and... We also take and, you know, kind of remember our roots, so to speak. So I think a lot of you guys that like kind of the classic TSP will really love today's show. Before we get into it, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, the awesome, illustrious Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com where he'll teach you to make cooking a, a life skill by focusing on technique over recipe. If you don't think cooking is a survival skill... Brother, you've never lived on MREs for six months like I have. You get pretty creative in those situations. Being able to cook all the food that we talk about growing for ourselves and sourcing locally is a great way uh, to enhance your quality of life and to save money. If you're not, if you know if you become a great cook, you're not going out to expensive restaurants. And Chef Keith has a lot of ways to help you do that he has an awesome podcast he has a really great youtube channel and uh, right now he's got some of the coolest uh, sauces you'll ever find pasta sauces in new packaging that makes shipping a lot easier things like creamy basil flame roasted red pepper sun dried tomato and rosemary uh soon he'll be moving things over to amazon but for now just go ahead and check out harvesteating.com for all of that and more remember chef keith will help you make cooking into a life skill Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year a publication at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have, in 1666, the gravity of an apple falling. We have the great fire of London and St. Paul's Cathedral. We have the false messiah converts to Islam. I'm going to read The Gravity of an Apple Falling. If an apple falls from a tree there is no genius to, and there is no genius to see it do we get gravity young isaac newton is contemplating the problem of how the moon orbits the earth when he observes an op- apple fall perpendicular to the ground he has an intuitive thought the force that draws the apple to the ground might act further than the top of the trees it might reach all the way to the moon and beyond his intuition will not become a mathematical principle until he publishes his famous work, Principia, in 1687. Mike Take by Alex Shrug. Don't forget that while young Isaac is contemplating the moon, he should be contemplating his mother's sheep. She's trying to train him to run the manor. He will become a much better administrator when he matures. The thing to remember is that his calculations and many of the thoughts of scientists during the time are the foundation of science that we use today. Even though Einstein turned physics on its head and destroys Newton's general law of the cosmos or general idea of the cosmos. NASA still uses Newtonian physics, the formulas for gravity he put down in Principia, to send probes to Mars and Pluto and land people on the moon. The reason the moon orbits the Earth is because the moon is falling toward the Earth at an angle. Gravity pulls it down, but because the moon is also traveling very fast, it keeps missing the Earth, flying past it and looping back. This is called elliptical orbit. You can think of it as a ball circling around a drain or whatever you wish. Newton's formulas for gravity work well enough We don't have to know why it works. It just has to work. What's interesting to me is even though uh, Principia was published in 1687 and the Apple incident, at least as it is reported, occurred in 1666, um, these formulas do still work today, and yet we still don't even really know what gravity is. We, for for all the talk of science being settled in various areas, and we know this and we know that, and we're so superior now, um, first of all, the, the, the basic mathematics and physics we use to do something like send a spacecraft to frickin' Pluto were developed in the 1600s. And secondly, scientists cannot agree on what gravity is. There's multiple theories on what gravity actually is. The most commonly accepted by many is curved space. The gravity is simply curved space, and an object moving through curved space will follow the curve. It leaves a lot of things unanswered, and it doesn't really seem quite that simple. It may even be that gravity curves space, but that doesn't mean that that's what it is. Sometimes the most simplistic things in in, in, in your general observations, hey, like, I, like I've said, there's certain... Natural laws, like the law of gravity. If you drop shit, it falls. As obvious as that is, the underpinnings of how it actually works are far more complex than we can even conceive of. My take by Jack Spirico. Next up, let's take a look at the Bob Wells Plan of the Week. Bob has a uh, great one for us this week, the Red Gold Nectarine. The Red Gold Nectarine is highly adaptable from Zone 5 to 9. It is a yellow freestone nectarine. It produces large fruit with beautiful blush red skin covering the firm, juicy flesh. Although the red gold nectarine is a small tree with a mature height of 12 to 14 feet, it puts on quite a show through the seasons. As with all nectarine cultivars, the red gold does not require a pollinator. The red gold nectarine will thrive in full sun, and you will be amazed by the abundant harvest in midsummer. Perfect for eating right off the tree and a top choice for desserts. They're also good for canning and freezing. Find this plant more at BobwellsNursery.com. Bobwells Nursery specializes in edible landscape planting, including trees, fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruit, trees, as well as other hard-to-find specialty trees. You can learn more about this at BobwellsNursery.com. I haven't planted this variety, but I do have a, a Red Chief Nectarine, which is a similar variety, and it is blowing up. Uh, it has thrived where others have failed, and I imagine that this variety is probably quite vigorous as well. It's also a really great thing for you guys that have the small backyards that want a variety of fruit uh, in your small backyards to have a tree like this because it is self-fertile. So check out Bob today, and uh, you can find all kinds of really great stuff at Bob Wells Nursery. Remember, those of you that are MSB members, you do get 10% off everything at the MSB. I won't say much about the MSB today, except I have a new vendor for you coming today. And another one coming for you later in the week. Two more coming this week with discounts uh, that are awesome, just like Bob Wells is awesome with 10% off all those plants. For those of you that are doing significant planning over the next couple years, the Bob Wells Wells discount is totally covering your MSB membership. That's just one way to think about the value we bring you with MSB or Members Support Brigade. Um, Next up, I want to tell you today now, before we start the actual subject, why this episode is such a big deal. I did some mathematics of my own a, a few months ago uh, based on how much time I spend on average preparing a podcast. The time of when you add in the research, the development of the outline, the actual recording of it, uh, the production of it, the entire process from, 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 from bow to stern. And then I took that number and divided the number 10,000 by it. And the number that came up was 1,666. And why does 10,000 matter? Because I can tell you now that I have now spent 10,000 hours in podcast production and delivery. 10,000 hours. And that is the number that is considered, the, the number of hours one must put into something before they can truly say they've become a master of that thing. And I'm not tooting my own horn. And I'm not saying I'm a master of anything. But I, I will tell you this. That this show. And what I know it means to many members of this audience. are Is the only thing. Other than maybe being a father and a husband and things like that. But the only thing at this type of a level. That I've ever put 10,000 hours into. And... So that makes it special to me more for the fact that it was able to take someone like me who went from career to career and from, you know, company to company. And whether it was as an employee or an owner, it didn't matter. I could not be grounded in anything. Um, I was considered hopelessly, uh, you know, chasing one thing after another by many people that knew me. And when I started this, I think a lot of people thought, oh, it's another phase for Jack. Apparently not. 10,000 hours uh, of production of podcasts, I would imagine when you look at it from a standpoint of the fact that this show is a hundred percent produced by me. I don't have an editor. I don't have, you know, a research assistant. I don't have someone doing my graphics or writing up anything. And that may change because those of you that put in to be kind of an assistant to me, um, I just haven't gotten back to any of you guys yet. I'm going to. So, Uh, That may change. I may get some help. But up until now, I've done 100% of this on my own. And I would have to imagine there's not that many people in the world that have 10,000 hours of full production experience with podcasting. So uh, I want to say thank you to all of you, because without you guys, I couldn't have done it. You guys are what made it worth doing. And you you guys are the ones that supported me and made that possible and have made TSP into what it is. And and thank you to each and every person out there that's even listened to one episode, and especially thank you to anybody that's even told one person about the work we do here. Thank you very much for helping me achieve uh, a pretty big goal. Thank you very much. All right, with that, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show. Um, Self-sufficiency and self-reliance are two words that are often used interchangeably. Uh, I'm going to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. Great. Do you know the difference? And most people don't. And i want to be straight up and tell you that these are my definitions of self-sufficient and self-reliant. I don't know who agrees or disagrees with them, but after you hear them today and how I explain them, I think you will find that they make a lot of sense, specifically from a planning standpoint, I think what people hear about preparedness and whatever it is that makes them realize that they're not prepared and that they're exposed to risks in the world, whether it be some major catastrophe looming like an economic collapse, they find out how money works and hey, this doesn't make any sense, or they find out about the world of peak oil, or they look at the agricultural practices of the world today and they realize that we are actually losing our capacity to feed the planet and that things are only getting worse Whatever it is, or they just figure out that a whole lot of people are getting laid off and they might be next. Whatever it is, when they get into preparedness, they have kind of a knee-jerk reaction, and they kind of feel scared and exposed. And what they want to do then is to just buy a bunch of stuff and put it away so if everything goes wrong, they'll be prepared. And they may even mislead themselves into something like if I buy a couple cases of MREs and number 10 cans and uh, get a 72-hour kit put away and a radio or something like that, maybe a generator and a couple hundred gallons of gasoline, I'll be able to write out anything. When all of those things may be useful in the, the world of preparedness, but they, they may leave the person very, very exposed to the things that are most likely to occur. So we've always based what we do here at the Survival Podcast on the disaster probability scale and the the threat impact matrix. So the more likely it is that you will experience a disaster, it has an inverse relationship with the impact of the whole. And what that means is something like global pandemic wiping out 50% of the, the, uh, the, the planet has a huge impact scale. Massive impact scale. If it You know, if you get that bad, it really could be an Ellie, an extinction-level event. Once you hit half, it may not stop, right? Um, So that would be a terrible, terrible thing and very difficult to get through. But the likelihood that anybody that's listening to me right now will ever actually see that is relatively low, even though I think, you know, pandemics and epidemics will continue, and we haven't seen the worst of what we'll see, let's say, in the next 100 years. I don't think we'll have that. And even if we do, there's only so much you can do for something that awful. Okay? But if we start looking at something like losing your job, the death of a loved one, a house fire, a storm that tears up a neighborhood versus an entire nation, etc., these things have a high probability of occurring to you as an individual because they don't affect as many people. So they're the common disasters that happen every day. And once we understand that, then we can step back and say, hold on a second. What I'm really trying to do here is not protect myself from the end of the world as we know it, because no matter what you do, you can only be so protected from, from that level of a disaster. It's not that they're completely impossible, but they are somewhat improbable. And even if I think they're probable, it doesn't matter, because I have a journey to partake in. And... The, even if I'm worried about these bigger disasters, the probability is that I'll face multiple small disasters before any large disaster. And if they knock me off my path, so to speak, toward preparedness, then I'm actually going to be worse off and more exposed if this big thing I fear occurs. But the funny thing is if I start preparing for all these little things, and I start living my, my life in a way that makes me resilient against those then I start my journey toward total preparedness or as much as I, am, I, I feel that I need or as much as I am logistically and economically capable of. Okay, And when we see it that way, then we say to ourselves, okay, then what we're really talking about is lifestyle design, lifestyle planning. We're going to set up our life with a design so that it can stand us through the tough times. That if we lose a job, we go, okay, I lost a job. Now i got to figure out what I want to do next. Not, oh, my God, what do I do? I'm going to lose my house. How am I going to feed my kids? Right? You don't want that. So as soon as we get into the world of design, we have to start being a little more sophisticated in the actions we take and the steps that we take toward building a stronger, more resilient lifestyle. We can't just willy-nilly. We can't just buy this thing and then this next thing and store all this crap in our garage and hope that we don't need it, but if we do, at least it's there. We, We can't plan that way anymore because we have to start saying to ourselves things like, well, if I spend this money and nothing goes wrong, what good has it done me? Does that make sense? I mean, you you have to start asking that question because you're not just planning for catastrophic failure. You're planning for success. You're planning for failure. You're planning for personal success and personal failure. You're planning for national success and national failure. You're planning for a good economy, a shaky economy, a sideways economy, and a downward economy. You're planning for all of it. You're planning for every contingency. So that means if we just throw a bunch of money at a problem that never happens, we actually end up worse off than if we had done nothing. And that doesn't make any sense at all. And that leads us to the the foundational components of what we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to set up two things in our life, self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And we will never be 100% of either. In fact we will never be 100% of one and the other we don't even measure in percentages because that itself is the delineation. We measure one in time and one in percentage. So let's look at that. Self-reliance is your ability to rely upon what you have without outside support for a time. So, and, And it comes in different niches or different verticals as we say in marketing. So if I have I have in front of me right now 40 AA batteries in a Duracell pack that I think I took two out of for some reason or another the other day, so there's 38 of them there. If I then had with me a small flashlight that took AA batteries, and that was going to be a source of light for me, and I could figure out, well, how many hours will those AA, a pair of those AA batteries run that flashlight? And then I could take that and multiply it by 38 and come up with some number of hours, And for light, in that amount and capacity, those batteries and that flashlight together, you better have two because the flashlight itself might break, would make me self-reliant in light for that period of time. Let's say, I don't know, pulling it out of my ass 700 hours. I have 700 hours of light self-reliance. Because no matter how much I have stored up, I have a finite capability in space and time and economics that I can put batteries away for, I can only have so many batteries, that it will run out. I will cease to have self-reliance, and I will become once again reliant upon resupply. That's self-reliance, okay? And even if you say, well, you know what, Jack? Batteries aren't that expensive. You could, for all intents and purposes, be permanently self-reliant when it comes to light, if all you want is a a small flashlight because you could store up 10 years worth of batteries which is how long the batteries store for and you could rotate them and yeah. but if I'm going to do that the space the money the logistics and the focus of my mind are such that something else will suffer so I have to be judicious with how I lay out my self-reliance I can put away so much water and if that water supports me for two weeks with no new water coming in I am self-reliant for two weeks as it relates to water And I have to look at every place in my life that I want to shore up and determine how much is reasonable, practical, and fits with my risk tolerance for self-reliance. So that leads us to what is self-sufficiency. Since we measure self-reliance in time, then self-sufficiency must be what we measure in percentage. So on my outbuilding, I have gutters. And those gutters are connected to two tanks. Those two tanks hold combined about 3,100 gallons of water, okay? That is not enough water based on the rain and recharge rates in my climate to provide me with all the water I need for everything that I do, nonstop, year to year to year to year, forever. It would be a portion. It would be a portion. And the truth is, if it's based on my ability to cook and clean with water and have drinking water we are actually then with that water and with a few other things that are here that are water harvesting systems 100% self-sufficient with water unfortunately that's not the only thing I need water for it really isn't I need water for my crops I need water for my birds it's about 10% of the total water that I use not the 3,000 gallons I use far more than, than, than that would be Because that water, as we drain it down, actually resupplies itself every time it rains. So if we use 1,000 gallons, and we're down to about 2,000 gallons, and we get one good rainfall, those tanks fill right back up. But that can only do so much for me. So it provides me a percentage of self-sufficiency. Whereas if all I had was two big tanks full of water that I filled up with a garden hose, and there was no way to get rainwater into them, They would provide self-reliance for a time. In other words, as I started to drain them down, unless my ability to pump water to them came back, they would run out. And it's that simple. And you can go through everything that we do. Food. If I go out and acquire enough food for my storage uh, pantry and my long-term food stores that I could feed my family, maybe not the very diet that I would prefer to do so, but I could keep everybody alive with a couple thousand calories a day for six months, I am food self-reliant for six months. If I have a garden and a sustainable regenerative homestead that without outside inputs provides me 10% of my food, I am 10% self-sufficient. If it provides me half of my calories, I am 50% self-sufficient. And areas start to get gray from that point because, well, what's an outside input? What's an outside input? Right now, if the economy completely collapses and crashes and I can't buy feed for my birds, I can't run the number of birds that I have. There's no way. My my system would begin to fall in on itself. But there'd be a solution. The solution would be to immediately begin harvesting birds for meat harvesting the least productive layers and and male birds for meat, keeping just a few males for reproductive purposes, and pair my flock down to a level where the flock could at least survive without grain. And that's probably, right now, at the development level of the property, a dozen, a dozen layers could probably survive here, and they would lay far less frequently, but they would provide us enough eggs to get all the protein we would probably need for a week, except during their very uh small, you know the, the period of time where they lay the least where they they cycle out so i have a certain amount of self sufficiency built into the ducks but mostly what i have with the ducks is self reliance because i can store their feed i have water that i could supply them with water i've got a pond that i could use i don't want them in there now but if i had to i could put them in that pond I could store seed that can be grown quickly to provide feed for them. Not the type of feed that we would use, but the type of feed they would use. So you, you, when you start seeing that that difference between the two, you also start to immediately see where they overlap. And that's good. So we have to then say to ourselves, well, why would I want to be self-reliant? Well, i want to be self-reliant so I can get through the majority of disasters. That, that's the answer to that. Because building up self-reliance of a week or two for almost every real need in your life is not that hard. It's not even that expensive. I mean, we're talking $5,000 or less um, over time to be two weeks self-reliant in every major capacity of your life. Two weeks. And then to use storing your money and investing your wealth become self-reliant financially first for 90 days and then for at least six months. So if we can be financially self-reliant for six months, I could lose my job, get no unemployment, whatever, but I could be okay for six months. I have plenty of time to think and figure out what to do about it and get back on my feet. And in all the other walks of life, water, food, health, and sanitation, being able to provide for my own security, etc. I could have two weeks then the majority of disasters that occur in this country would be either minor to very major inconveniences for me, but they would not be life-ending or life-altering. So that's why I want to be self, self-reliant. So why do I want to be self-sufficient? Because self-sufficiency is actually where we begin to sever our dependence on the systems. All self-reliance does is give us some time that we can do without that. Self-sufficiency begins to give us varying percentages and degrees of separation. If we can produce a quarter of our own food, then we only rely on the system for 75% of our calories. 50, 50. Maybe we can get up to 70, 80. Some people like Ben Falk are getting 90% of their calories from their land. 90%. Now, he's in Vermont, which is a far less brittle landscape than I have here in Texas. But it does show you what can be done. So the the goal of self-sufficiency is to sever specifically unhealthy ties to support systems that can fail or are parasitic in nature. So we, we can't likely become 100% self-sufficient with our health needs. There may be times that we need a doctor or we need to go to a hospital, that we might need surgery. If we get hit by a truck and we're lucky enough to survive it, we may very well need the hands of a skilled surgeon to put ourselves back together. But if we learn about herbs, we learn about positive lifestyle choices, etc, we can take a large percentage that most people spend of their time and their life and their talent and their money, giving it to the medical industry for supposed health, and we could take that back. So we could take time back, more, more so even than money, because we're not sitting in a doctor's office waiting to get a drug. Instead, we've gone on with our lives. And we've self-administered something like an herb. Or we've simply identified, listen, I'm not sick. I'm making a lifestyle choice that's causing me to feel sick. And I need to stop making that choice. That usually saves us money in multiple ways. But we get the time back. The most valuable thing that you have in your life is time. Money doesn't compare to time. Now, we, we do a good job in our, our worlds of trading time for money. But really, time is what it's all about. Because if you were lying on a bed and you were going to die, and you had a million dollars, and someone said to you, if you just give away that million dollars, just don't even worry about where it goes, you just are willing for that million dollars to vanish, you will be healthy and be able to continue your life for at least a minimum of another 10 years, $100,000 a year. You can buy your life back. You'd make the deal. Here's the problem with that. You don't get that deal. No one makes that deal with you. That's not an opportunity that presents itself. So you have to, you have to prepay that, so to speak. You have to take the time back before it's spent. And self sufficiency helps us do that. Um, when we look at degrees of self sufficiency, what we really need to understand is that, again, we can't generally become 100% self sufficient. So we have to pick and choose the areas where we have the greatest opportunities to afford ourselves a, a self-sufficiency that that makes sense for us. So it, it, it might be the case that with $100,000, you could put in a solar system with the bat- most badass batteries on the planet that would give you 100% power self-sufficiency for dang near the rest of your life. You wouldn't rely on anybody, You wouldn't care. Somebody shut off the grid, you wouldn't even know. You can still run your air conditioner, for God's sakes. But it may not make any sense to spend that kind of money on solar power. Because it may make a lot more sense to, say, take that money and invest it in land that can be developed in such a way that it provides all of your caloric needs for the rest of your life with no inputs. That's actually possible. And then the underlying asset is far more convertible to other forms of capital than your solar system. If you did put a $100,000 solar system on a house and you owned a $200,000 house, now then you've got to sell that house for $300,000 to break even. Not many people are willing to pay for it. It's not very transferable. In a society where all power options are gone, the whole world has gone into oblivion, And something like that would be so highly valued, there's nobody with any money to buy it. And even if they had the money, you wouldn't want to sell it because you'd want to stay there. So that that concept of trying to be energy independent, energy self-sufficient at such an astronomical cost, and that's what it takes right now in many climates and in many situations, if you want to maintain your lifestyle, doesn't make sense. So in, in in that situation, what we say is, well, what if we did this? What if we looked at alternative energy production means geothermal, solar, wind, whatever, and said, I want to produce 20% of my own power. And that way, if if my capacity to acquire the 80 fails, I still have something. Now we begin to sever the tether a little bit. Now we start producing enough energy for our needs and that which we purchase is to provide for our wants. And when we live in that world, if we can meet our needs, then we are in many ways self-sufficient at 100%. We're at least at our core survival basis. But most of us don't want to live at a core survival basis. We want abundance. We want happiness. We want joy in our lives. So by not trying to be a purist and get everything to 100% and picking and choosing our degrees of self-sufficiency in the individual niches and verticals that make sense for us, we're able to slowly over time become higher and higher as a total percentage self-sufficient. And we make up for the gap with self-reliance. The two being like twins, that, but they're like fraternal twins. They're not identical right? It's like a brother and sister. And by having male and female intuitions, male and female instincts, they have more power than if they were just identical. And that's how these two work together. So we set up something like water harvesting systems for self-sufficiency. And then we expand our storage capacity to increase our self-reliance. Now there's a drought, but now I don't have 3,000 gallons of water stored. I have 30,000 gallons. I can outlast almost any drought, and maybe I can't provide water to my entire property, but I can keep some basic core things running, and not everything dies on me. This sounds like, you know, when you first hear about it, a kind of like a nitpick thing, you know, Magazine versus clip in a gun. Uh, it's not really a gun, it's a rifle. Uh, I want to blow my brains out when I hear that, and I'll use my clip to do it too, because no one's going to care when my brains come out, which, whether it was a clip or a magazine that the, that the round came out of. The thing is, it's not a nitpick. It's actually critical to planning. And let me explain to you, kind of with real-world application, how that works. If we were all Bruce Wayne, right? We've got Batman, billionaire. And we could just say, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm going to put a bat cave in. I'm going to have a mansion. I'm going to have grounds, and there's going to be all kinds of stuff out there to eat. And uh, I'm going to have superpowers, and anything I need, I'll just buy. And we could just buy our way into self-sufficiency and self-reliance at an unlimited level. Then it wouldn't matter. Are you Bruce Wayne? Because I certainly ain't. I'm really not. So that means that every single day, as we advance our self-reliance and self-sufficiency in various areas, we are forced to make choices do I get a generator or expand my garden this month because I can do one or the other and not both well it's pretty simple then, isn't it? If we start out with that core, self-reliance and self-sufficiency what does a generator give me? self-reliance okay what does a garden give me if it's properly designed self sufficiency because i can store my own i can store food i can replant my own seeds i can have enough seed to replant that garden so many times i'll be dead before i need to buy seed again even if i just want to put a self reliance factor into there cuz seed's cheap right so and a, and a generator will not run forever i cannot store enough gasoline or diesel depending on what kind of generator i have to run that generator nonstop, forever, infinity. okay? So it will run out. Right there, I've made a distinction. Now what I need to say to myself, what type of self-reliance am I buying for myself by investing in a generator? Power. How much power does this particular generator I can afford give me? It will do all these things. Great. Right now, if I don't have it, how many of those things can I still do anyway? Am I buying a second generator because two is one and one is none? Do I already have that met? If I go out and get two 800-watt inverters and some extension cords and put them with both my vehicles and do what Stephen Harris teaches and make sure my vehicles are kept full, how much of that self-reliance is transferable to a much lower-cost solution? See? How that works. We start making a very intelligent analysis. Then we come over to the garden and say, okay, this gives me self-sufficiency for food. What food? How much of it? How long does it take to grow? How experienced am I at this? Dozens of questions. And then we say to ourselves, okay, which one am I most brittle towards right now? If I have a huge supply of food stored up, but I have almost no energetic resiliency whatsoever, you know, um, then it might make sense that I get the generator first. If I have a two-car household, and I've already been storing fuel for my cars, and I have 60 or 120 gallons of fuel stored up on a rotational basis for both of my vehicles, and I already make a, 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 a practice of keeping my vehicles full as much as possible. And my biggest concern is a power outage for a week. And I'm concerned about things like keeping my food cool in my refrigerator, not having my deep freezer screw up. Maybe I can't run air conditioning, but at least I can run a fan so I can sleep comfortably, etc. Then I take 100 bucks and I go out and buy two inverters. and I pick another 100 bucks and I go out and buy several extension cords. And I would need the extension cords for the generator anyway to make it effective. And then I do the garden first. And you may disagree with the way I work that out. That's not the point. The point is not for me to tell you what to do. The point is for me to empower you with this knowledge and this thinking so that every single time you end up in that scenario where you say, I can do this or this, you can make that determination. Or when you say, okay, I have a budget this month of uh, 500 bucks. I can do something. What should I do? Instead of just saying, you know what, I'll just I'll just really copy-can my ass off this month, I'll just store up a whole bunch of food. That you sit down and say, wait a minute, where am I brittle and how am I brittle? You may realize that the place you're most brittle right now is cash reserves. And then the only thing you do with that $500 is put it in savings. Very simple decision to make. If you say, you know, I got a pretty decent supply of food, water, got some health uh, health supplies put away. My knowledge is doing pretty well. I, I could I could survive at least 30 days on the food that's in the house right now. I've got a garden going. Um, but cash-wise, I'm kind of thin. If I lost my job, I've only got enough cash to replace my income for 30 days. Go where you most brittle. And then you say to yourself, that's a self-reliance thing. Cash is self-reliance. It's not self-sufficient. Until you get into the Bruce Wayne world, Your cash until your cash is such that it can be put into safe, conservative investments and provide income that exceeds your needs, wants, and desires. Most people call that retirement. But until you get there, you are not financially self-sufficient. You are self-reliant for time. Or as Buckminster Fuller said, wealth is a measure of the number of days that you can live without needing income from other sources. So your wealth, instead of being measured in dollars, should be measured in time. That's what Buck, Mr. Fuller said, not me. So that if you can live for five years like you want to live, and even if you're penniless at the end of that five years, your wealth is five years. Your wealth is five years. It's not $400,000. It's five years. And then there's an interesting thing that happens. Once you know that, you can say, well, I don't have to live quite this good. And maybe now you could live 10 years on that. And in that 10 years, maybe you can figure out a way to solve your lack of income problem. But isn't it interesting that one of the greatest thinkers of our time, Buckminster Fuller, said that wealth is measured in time? And that I'm telling you, the most valuable thing that you have in your world, in your life, is your time. It's what you have to judiciously guard. And when you start making decisions about do I buy this or that or do I invest my time in this or that, it's exactly what you're doing. You're spending your time. You're either spending it by saying I'm going to go out and I'm going to build this system this weekend instead of fishing or playing golf or doing something else productive, okay? So you're actually literally spending the time or when you're spending money, you're now taking the time that you built up in the form of finance And spending it later. So you spent 40 hours of work to earn that money. And when you spend that money, that's your 40 hours that goes like this. You better get something worth the 40 hours. As soon as you start to break things into self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and analyze how they either create time or percentage of support for your lifestyle, you start to make smart decisions. So the other thing we have to say, though, is if we're never going to be fully independent... How how do we deal with that? How do we cope with that fact that we do need other people, that we do need to rely on on other systems? Well, it's called interdependence, and what we're looking for is healthy interdependence. No man is an island, or no man should be an island. Most of us don't want to be hermits and live alone in the mountains, or if you do, guess what? Go do it. Nothing's stopping you. There is so much wilderness available in this world, especially this country, that you could disappear into, and no one would ever come looking for you. And you could go live on your own as an island tomorrow. You might not like it in the end. You might decide you want to come back. Or you might starve to death or freeze to death or whatever. But if you just want to try it, it's out there. It really still is. So healthy interdependence is when the things that I am gaining by a relationship, whether it's with my fellow countrymen or my next-door neighbor or society as a whole, my dependence is by choice, not necessity. If I can get to a point where most of what I'm taking from the relationships are things that enhance my quality of life, that I'm doing so by choice, I have healthy independence, interdependence. Otherwise, you have in a relationship like a like a, a, a romantic relationship, you call a codependence, and it's not even codependence; it's, it's complete dependence, right? But it has the codependence um, feel to it where your your energy is being sucked. So when you're in a codependent romantic relationship where both of you feel you need each other, you're both exhausted all the time. You're both completely worn out and completely exhausted. Because for everything you get, you're having to give as much or more back. You're in a negative energy flow. And both of you can be in that state. You, you it might not seem to make sense mathematically, but humans are not mathematical. We're biological. You can measure a lot of our processes with mathematics, but we don't work in in a fully mathematically reconcilable way when it comes to energy interactions between beings. You can be giving more than you get, and your partner can be giving more than you get than they get from you at the same time, and both of you are just worn out. Well, since our Our dependence in life, if we don't build up self-sufficiency and self-reliance, is on an inanimate, uncaring group of systems. Unthinking, unfeeling automatons, so to speak. It never wears out. But we do. We feel like I'm giving so much to my job. I'm giving so much to my school. I'm giving so much to my community. And I'm not getting back what I'm putting in. And you can only run on a negative energy deficit for so long. If you have the biggest battery bank in the world, but you're, you know, you're, you're putting in, let's just say 10 and you're burning 11. It, it runs dry sooner or later. And long before a battery bank is out of energy, you begin to damage it. As you cross 50%, 40%, 30%, 20%. You actually start to do irreparable harm to the batteries themselves. So that even when you do manage to recharge them, they're never quite the same again. And you reduce their life. Hello battery. Remember the movie The Matrix? Remember what people were? Batteries. That's how the system sees you. You're a battery. So a healthy interdependence with the systems is where you're getting more than you're putting in and that's not being on welfare that means that your energy is such that what you do give you can give freely by choice that you've seen to your own hierarchy of basic needs sufficiently that you can feel confident and safe and stable and you feel like you have that for your family and the people that you care most about and then you can give your ass off and not feel drained And you look at some of us that have have reached a point like that in our lives, you say, how the hell do you get so much done? How the hell are you able to do this stuff every day? That's how. That's how. It's meeting that hierarchy of needs at a way where you feel like, I've got X amount of self-sufficiency, or X percentage of self-sufficiency, and X amount of time of self-reliance, and if anything goes wrong, i got plenty of time to fix my shit before it runs out. And that very simple psychological shift to feeling not stable due to some sort of normalcy bias, like it's all going to be okay, it's all super, no. But to actually have analyzed it critically so that the nagging ache that's in every human being that says to you, all this stability is not real. All this safety and security is not real. All the belief that it's just going to be okay is not real. Society is screwed and you know it. And no matter how much a person seems like that person that just doesn't get it, the, the, the lady that's like, we don't need a gun because nothing would ever happen here. No one would hurt me. They know they're full of shit. They're trying to hide it. They're covering up a wound with a band-aid. And it's, it's like gangrene underneath it, just like our economy. And so they're never quite content, they're never quite happy, they're never really able to be fully human. They say ignorance is bliss, but they're not ignorant, they're not sufficiently ignorant to truly be blissful. No matter how much they appear to be so, underneath the calm exterior is a raging storm. Where the hormones in the body are out of whack. This nation is more fat because of the hormones coursing through its bloodstream than how much food it eats every day. And I'll tell you what, that's based on all these things we're talking about and the crap that's in the food that we're eating. It's not a purely caloric problem. It's this, this, this angst, this anxiety, this fear. And it won't go away. It won't go away until you design your way out of it. And it is who this nation is supposed to be. This nation, we've been starting to get into, you know, the founding of this nation in the history segments was founded by people who left relative safety and security for an unknown because it had the potential to give them more than they could ever dream of. Politicians today use flowing, elegant words like that to mislead you and rob you and steal from you and give you a false sense of exceptionalism from your fellow man. But it's still true at its core. It's what made people come here. It's what made people crawl on a ship infested with rats and stink and dank and spend months at sea in darkness hoping they'd get there before they died of an illness, only to end up in a land where no one gave a shit that you just showed up. And it was up to you to figure out what to do with yourself. You can't do that unless you're willing to develop self-sufficiency and self-reliance into your life. So you have to start asking yourself, how much self-sufficiency do you want in your life? Because until you know, no one's going to give you the number. I'm not going to tell you today, guys, like, okay, what you need is to have a minimum of 30 days of self-reliance in all the major aspects of your life, and to be at least 25% self-sufficient in all the major aspects of your life. If you do that, your life will be good. Bull. Complete bull. Because I don't know you, your risk tolerance, how you feel, what you're logistically capable of in the next year or two or ten. And you need to start asking yourself, how much self-reliance do I have? And be honest, are you deceiving yourself? Have you tested yourself? People say, well, I'm self reliant for two weeks. Really? You sure? Are you sure? How about you try this? How about you do it for two days and then take full inventory of what's left and compare it to what you used and see if they actually made up. And then just take all the money you saved by relying on your stores for those two days and replace them. I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm saying unless you've sat down and like done the math, run an Excel spreadsheet or something like that, and actually factored this in, you don't know how self-sufficient you are. You really don't. And it's not even important that you have a number, but it is important to at least think about it. I say to yourself, well, it's at least two weeks, and know that that's true. Like, you could be more right you like I, I know it's more in some areas uh, maybe rated right two weeks in some others but i know in totality it's at least two weeks because as soon as you do that you know what happens again you calm you center it's not fake you're not still sitting there going, hmm, I wonder if that's really the case. You know, the, the thing that I wonder at times when I look around at society as it is today and compare it to how we got here and, and, the, and the generations that preceded us is, have we even lost touch with our innate desire for self-sufficiency and self-reliance? I think the answer is yes and no. I think in many ways the the feel-good, world we live in, that everything can just be okay, and I think, like, political correctness is a symptom of this. Like, political correctness is all about, I don't want to be offended by anything. I don't want to be uncomfortable because of anything anybody says, and I don't want anybody else to be uncomfortable that somebody said something either. Well, that's just a pile of crap, honestly. It's the most nonsensical thing in the world, a belief that, that human beings are entitled to perpetual comfort. And if you start to think that way, then you don't want to think about like, oh, well, you know what? The power might go out. I might lose my job. I might be dead broke living in a box on the street at some point. I want to prevent that from happening because, no, I'm entitled to not be offended. I'm entitled to not be upset. I'm entitled for Jack Spearco to shut up and do his podcast the way I want him to do it. And there's actually people out there that I hear from by email and comments that that's their actual attitude. You should do your show the way I want because I'm getting 80% of what I want from you. I'm getting enough that I won't just leave on my own. But I want you to bend to my will. I want you to not curse. I want you to take on my belief about climate change. I want this. I want that. Well, it ain't happening. And if you ain't get what you want from me, you ain't getting it from the whole world. And, And political correctness comes from this nonsense that we're entitled to happiness. That we're entitled to comfort. What we are entitled to as beings, as free beings, is to pursue comfort, to pursue happiness, to pr- pursue security based on our own tolerance for risk. And we're, we are we are to be free from being forced, from having the will of others imposed on us. But we're not free to have, you know, it's not like we have a right to have our will imposed on others. And and the only way that we will ever save humanity from this sickness is to switch people on to self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Because once you start to acquire that for yourself, when you start to see to your hierarchy of needs, when you realize, I am going to be okay, then you stop worrying that someone else is doing something in a way that you don't like. You simply say, I'm not going to engage in that behavior, or I'm not going to deal with that person, or I'm going to take what I want from that, and I'm going to let the rest be. In other words, you're going to grow the hell up. I mean, it's sad that a guy like me has to tell America to grow up, because that's what today's show is all about. Seeing to your own self-reliance and self-sufficiency sufficiently that you can take care of yourself and your family in the event that everything doesn't just stay perfect is not radical. It's called being a freaking fully formed, fully functional, responsible adult. That's what self-sufficiency and self-reliance and preparedness is. Adulthood. We have a nation of children. Forty. 50, 60, and 70-year-old children. I don't like the way this is being done. So don't engage in it. I'm worried about what somebody else is doing down the road. I don't like those two guys saying they're married. Tough shit. I don't like this. I don't like that. So What? What you really don't like is that you feel that you won't be okay if the world doesn't bend to what you think it should do. Well, guess what? It ain't happening. So it's up to you to stand. In this world, we have two choices as human beings. You can stand or you can kneel. Do you understand that? Doers stand. Those who will stand up and say, I will do the best I can for myself, in spite of whatever limitations they have, in spite of being, you know, injured in a way where they can't walk or being blind or being deaf, or some people, all three of those, there are people that are blind and deaf and do more than able-bodied people because they don't blame other people for their problems. They just say, okay, this is my limitation. Screw it. There are people that compete in triathlons and they do the, the, the marathon in a freaking wheelchair. They swim without the use of their freaking legs and they have a bicycle that they pedal with their hands. What's your excuse, America? What's your excuse? Well, I can't. It's too hard. I can't. I, I want to be self-sufficient and have my own little piece of land, but I can't figure out how to get land. Really? This is something that takes time. It's not easy. You know the other thing I'm sick of hearing from people? Not everybody can do blank. So you could come up with anything worth doing, and not everybody can do it. You know, you hear people that are that will say, well, that person's doing farming, but they're also running workshops. Not everybody that farms can run workshops. So not everybody can be an engineer. Not, Not everybody can be a computer programmer. Not everybody can be a math teacher. Not everybody can be a dog trainer. Not everybody is qualified to be a janitor. So? what are? Don't worry about whatever everybody else can do. What can you do? And if you have opportunities and you fail to take them because, well, not everybody else can do them, well, you know what that is? That's fear. That's I'm scared. I'm scared that I might fail, so what I'm going to make it an excuse to not even try because it's not fair to other people that I do that. You're carrying around bullshit baggage. That's what that is. But if you'll stand up and start taking these little tiny steps, little baby steps, I'm going to put my shit in order. I'm going to see to my own needs. I don't know how I'm going to do it. That's the sum of you really need to say. I'm going to do it, and I don't know how. I feel so far in the hole. I feel exposed. I feel scared. Not sure what to do. But I'm going to take one step today. One. I'm going to take one step tomorrow, and I'll take one step the next day, and I will figure out, I will pick and choose, I will make something positive happen every single day, because ain't nobody going to do it for me, and that's okay, because they shouldn't, because it won't really be real unless I do it. And that's not about being so independent that you don't accept help, but that when you do have someone help you, you know you're helping them too or you know that that assistance may not be returned to the individual that gave it to you, but you will pay it forward somewhere else. Because security at the individual level is what breeds stability at the national level, at the group level, at the community level. You can't provide security to society, but security that is claimed and developed and defended by thousands and millions of individuals can bring stability and progress to society. The governments of the world have it backwards. We'll just make everybody perfectly safe and comfortable. Well, that breaks the whole human dynamic. That leads to people that can't function as adults. That leads to people you have to actually explain to them that the stuff we talk about as preppers is just being a responsible adult, and even when you do, they don't understand it. That's where that comes from. If you removed this 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 uh, uh, attempt by government to fully domesticate human beings like farm animals to fully codify their comfort, safety, and security, and to protect them like little bitty infants from anything that might upset or offend them. For a week, all of a sudden, you know what? All this stuff we talk about doing would become really popular really fast. But it won't. It won't. Society is going to be continue to act like a bunch of spoiled children. But you can apply this in your daily life right now. Again, one step at a time. One step at a time. And don't be, able, don't be afraid to admit, I don't know what to do next. I don't know where to go from here. And do me a favor, don't email me and tell me I don't know, and I, I need you to tell me. I can't. I can't. You can't write me a five-page book, expect me to read it, decipher your life like freaking Yoda, and tell you what to do with yourself. The first thing you have to do is just say, I don't know. Okay? I'm just going to sit down today. I'm going to evaluate where I am. And then i want to say this is where I would like to be a year from now. And shoot, swing a little bit. Swing through the fence with it. And then say, is there one thing I can do today that moves me one centimeter in that direction? And do that. And then do it again. And then do it again. And here's the thing. If you take someone that can't possibly clear a 4 foot hurdle and put a 4 foot hurdle in front of them and tell them to jump over it they'll jump higher than they ever would if you gave them a 1 foot hurdle that they could easily clear. They may not clear the 4 foot hurdle but they might clear 3 foot 6 because they tried for 4. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The only thing that you should be willing to do when it comes to fear is admit first that you are in a state of fear. Because it's like it's like figuring out where you are in the wilderness. You have to stop and say, okay, I'm lost. And it's an amazing thing. That when, when a person actually just stops in a wilderness survival scenario, sits down and says, okay, I, I, I am lost. Let me start thinking about what I know about being lost. They get less lost. Even if they don't get found right away. They they stop making the problem worse, and they start proactively working on a solution. Well, all I have to do, really, if I'm in any kind of a populated area, is make sure I'm not going to freeze to death or or die of uh, heat exhaustion or whatever, find a little bit of water and food, and then be as noisy and visible and obnoxious as possible, and sooner or later, someone will find me. It's not always an option, but it's usually an option start a fire and start throwing green branches in it, and sooner or later the freaking park rangers will come to give you a ticket. And they can either arrest you for having a fire you're not supposed to, and that's good because they'll take you somewhere give you medical treatment and feed you, and you can call a lawyer and worry about that later, or they go, oh, you were lost, okay. We were looking for you anyway. Now we know where you're at. Let's put this out and get you home. But if we keep running around in circles refusing to admit that we're lost... You keep making the problem worse. And most people are completely unprepared in life and are freaked out because you listen to Alex Jones one too many times and you think that the the the, the, the freaking Gestapo is going to come put you in a FEMA camp. You don't really think that. You actually think that that fear is preferable than the real fear that your problems are of your own making and only you can fix it. That's a hell of a lot scarier than some sci-fi fantasy fear. It really is. Because it means damn, damn, i got to fix this myself. It's called growing up. It's called reaching a state of emotional and spiritual maturity as a human being. However you define spirituality, whether you see spirituality the way that many atheists do, because you believe in yourself and life and the one chance you have, or you have an organized religion that you follow, or that you have a connection to the earth Whatever faith you have, there's a spirituality in all of us. And we need a maturity, both as grown-up adults and as spiritual beings, to deal with the problems that life comes up us. Because that's how we were designed. That's how we were designed. That's how we have been able, as a species, to make it this far. With those two things working together. And damn it if we're not doing everything to destroy both of them. Turning religion into an industry and self-sufficiency and self-reliance into something only selfish lunatics do. Taking the two things that actually make us what we are and convincing people that they're negative and bad because they make some people who aren't willing to take the steps uncomfortable. The ship is yours, Captain. It's called the SS Life. It's up to you to grab the wheel right now, take control of yourself, develop self-sufficiency and self-reliance, because that will lead you to independence and liberty. And now with 10,000 hours of doing this, I want to remind you that as far back as eight years ago, when you guys would say to me, what is this show about? My answer was self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty, the four pillars of being a modern survivalist. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.